grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Second Corinthians chapter number 2, we'll read a couple verses, we'll pray, and then we'll dive into it. Second Corinthians chapter number 2, verses 1, starting in verse number 1. Second Corinthians chapter number 2, beginning verse number 1, the Bible says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he? Then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest, when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Verse number five. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with over much sorrow. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this time, Father. I pray that you'll use me during this time. Speak through me, Father. I pray that you'll push my flesh and push me out of the way, Father, and speak through me and use me during this time. Help us to learn. Help us to grow from the message. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to switch over to my game. back to the passage in just a second. I want to explain a little about it, but before we do that, I want to get your minds on something um, from an old, 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 ancient uh, book or, or poem, ballad, uh, written by an old blind Greek by the name of Homer. Uh, in some of his stories and, and things that he wrote, he wrote about a, a, an event called the Trojan War give you a quick synopsis of it. The Trojan War started, according to legend, according to Homer, because uh, the most beautiful woman in all the world, her name was Helen, Helen of Sparta. She lived in Sparta. She was Helen of Sparta. Okay? Good job, class. Okay. Uh, she was Helen. Uh, Helen, Helen was married to the king, king of Sparta. And uh, the prince of a city far away, outside the confines of the Greek city-states, the city of Troy, uh, there was a prince. His name was Paris, Prince Paris. Uh, and Paris decided one day that he decided the most beautiful woman in all the world should belong to him. Uh, so he devised a plan, and uh, he went to Sparta, and he abducted and stole away Helen which was once again the king's wife, the king of Sparta, which obviously he was not very happy about. Uh, so king, uh, the king of Sparta sent his, uh, uh, started his brother uh, to search for her, to go after her, to find her, and to bring her back to him, because, you know, it was his wife. He didn't appreciate her being stolen away and kidnapped, like most people probably would, Okay. So the king's brother, his name was Agamemnon, and he was cho chosen by his brother, the king, to go after and find his wife and bring him back, bring her back. Uh, obviously, Paris took her back to Troy, and uh, all the Greek mythology that goes into it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but basically, she gets taken back to Troy, and the Trojan War begins between the city-states of Greece, obviously mainly Sparta, and the Trojans, the people of Troy. They begin to fight, and this battle, skirmishes, light skirmishes here, there, and everywhere go on for about 10 years. And the whole culmination, the climax is the Greeks are outside the city of Troy. They besieged it, and they're waiting. They're just trying to starve out the city of Troy. Well, one day they decide to pack it up, 
they leave what is known as the Trojan horse, a big, tall, wooden horse, massive, massive thing. Big, this big, tall, wooden horse, it's on wheels, they leave it outside the city of Troy, and they leave. They get on their ships, and they go away. And the wooden horse sits out there for a while, for many days, and the Trojans begin talking about, like, what should we do? Now, one thing the, uh, the Greeks did is they left a double agent there. His name was Sinon. And he was there trying to say, hey, look, this is a gift from the, from the Greeks. They're saying, look, we're over it. It's been 10 years. Obviously, uh, we're not going to get the king's wife back. We just want to have a sign of, uh, sign of peace, a treaty. We're going to give you this wooden horse to show that we don't want to fight anymore, that we're done. Greece and Troy can be at peace. And so eventually Sinon was able to convince the Trojans to bring this Trojan horse in, this big, massive wooden horse. And so they did. And at night, after the gates were closed and locked up, uh, the whole culmination of the story is that inside the wooden horse, it was hollow. And there were a few of the Greek soldiers hidden away and stowed away inside this horse. And obviously the Trojans now, thinking they were victorious in battle, the battle was over, we won, we got what we wanted, and they started having their parties and all that stuff, and the Greek soldiers snuck out of the Trojan horse, they went to the city gates, they opened the gates, and lo and behold, there was the Greek army, once again, back from their ships, and Troy would fall to the Greeks. Now, did that happen or not? I don't know. Uh, but we do know there is a city of Troy that was found uh, through archaeologists. Was there actually a Trojan horse? Were there actually people hiding in the Trojan horse? Don't know. It'd be a cool story. Pretty cool if it did happen. But I don't know. It wasn't there. Uh, they have not found remains of the Trojan horse. They have built replicas of the Trojan horse. Uh, but it's, a, it's an amazing story. Whether it happened or not, it has a very strong value buried into it as many stories and poems did and still do today, but mainly did in the past. There was a value that was brought into it of be careful of battle tactics of the enemy. There was a, a general, his name was Sun Tzu. He wrote a book called The Art of War. It's all these military tactics and stratagems that he says, look, if you do these things, I can almost guarantee you that you will win in any battle. And he goes through, and one of the things he talks about in the planning strategy, he has this to say. He says, now, the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his temple ere the battle is fought. So basically saying, the general that wins the battle is the one that before he even goes out and fights the battle, he's back at home. And he's thinking, he's planning, he's saying, okay, what if this happens? Okay, what if this happens? Okay, what if this happens? What if this happens? Okay, so ere the battle is fought, he's already planning, he's already making calculation. The general who loses a battle makes but few calculations beforehand. Thus, this is his conclusion, thus, do many calculations leads to victory, and few calculations to defeat. How much more... No calculation at all. It is by attention to this point that I can foresee who is likely to win or lose. So he's basically saying whoever does their homework, whoever is willing to stay up late at night and say this is what's going to happen, what if this happens, what if this happens, that's the person, that's the general that is going to win. Okay, so what's the point? Why is that important? Go back to our Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. Right here, this is the beginning of one of the uh, epistles that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth. And the first letter was not good at all. If you are familiar with the Bible and you know your Bible, you know the book of 1 Corinthians is a hodgepodge of all these things that Paul had to set up and say, okay, you're doing this wrong, 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 you're really doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, and that's the whole deal. There are some books that Paul wrote, the letters that Paul wrote, uh, specifically like the book of Philippians, where Paul is saying, oh, it's a joy. It is a joy to write to you. You guys bring me joy. That was not the case of the church of Corinth. Paul heard the things that was going on in the church of Corinth, and it was boggling his mind all the things that were going on. And he says, I have to do something about it. So now, in, uh, to, to uh, sum up his letter that he already wrote, he's writing them another letter. 
And now what he's saying, he's saying, look, I, I didn't do this because I, I wanted to grieve you. That's what he's trying to explain there. He says, he says, look, I did it out of love. I wasn't trying to beat you down. He says, look, I don't get any joy. I don't, I don't, I don't hope any of you were grieved by it. He's saying, I hope you learned from it. I hope you were able to gain information from what I was trying to tell you. And he goes on. I want to skip to verse number 11. We stopped in verse number 7. Let's go to verse number 11. This is the culmination of it. He's saying, look, this is why I put myself out there. This is why I stepped out on a limb, risking you never talking to me again, risking you never listening to me again, risking you getting offended and never wanting to hear from the Apostle Paul ever again, never wanting me to come to your church, come to your home ever again. I risked all of that, understanding I was going to tell you some things very hard to your face that you're doing wrong and you're doing wrong and you better fix this. Paul understood who he was talking to. He was talking to carnal, backslidden people. Well, carnal backslidden people are people that are not in tune with God. And so when you confront someone that's not in tune with God, they're probably not going to have the right response. So Paul understood he could, by writing this letter, he could literally be writing off the church at Corinth, a place he spent much time, much love, much labor, witnessing to those people, seeing them saved, planning that church. He understood by writing that letter, he could just be writing it off and that church could fall apart. But he understood, if I don't do anything, it's going to fall apart anyways. So it's worth me sticking my neck out and them hating me and never want to see me again. I at least know I did what I could. And so this is what he says. This is his culmination. He says, look, I didn't do it so you'd be sad. I didn't do it to hurt you. I didn't do any of that. I did it because I loved you. And this is the conclusion of it all. He says in verse number 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I have to, so you can learn not to fail again and again and again and to falter in these areas that Satan has laid traps and devices for you. That's all the book of 1 Corinthians was, is Paul was saying, look, guys, you fell for the devil's trap here. You fell for the devil's trap here. You let this in, but in the back door, because the devil uh, the devil laid a device for you there. That's all the book of 1 Corinthians was, was saying, guys, you messed up here because you let the devil win. You messed up here because you used this devil's device in your life. That's what he's trying to say. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he's trying to admonish them, saying, look, guys, I did it because I loved you. Because I do not want to see you get taken advantage of by your enemy. So you need to learn about your enemy. If you want to have victory over your enemy, you have to learn about your enemy. That's what the general Sun Tzu was trying to say. He's saying, look, if you don't learn about the tactics of your enemy, you are doomed to fall to them. That's what happened to the people of Troy. They did not know of the tactics and the stratagems of their foes in the Greeks, of their ability to trick. And because they did not, they fell. Their city was destroyed. And a great city, a powerful city, fell in a night. I want us to go to Luke chapter number 22. Another example of someone trying to warn against the devil and his strategies and his devices. Luke chapter 22 and verse number 31. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Jesus Christ, he's, he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry. His days are numbered. In, in fact, this is the time he is about to be betrayed. In just this passage, he's going to be betrayed. But before then, he's talking with his disciples, and they're having a conversation. There were some things going back and forth. There was contention among the disciples, and Jesus Christ stopped them, and he started talking to them, and he's talking to all of them. But then in verse number 31, he changes his, his general and turns it to a very specific person. Verse number 31, the Bible says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, talking to the apostle Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you. As the wheat. That's the devil's goal. The devil's goal for every single Christian is he has his crosshairs on you and he says, just wait. He is the master manipulator. He's the master hunter. He puts something out there 
He has his trap. He has his device. And he's willing to wait. He's willing to wait for you to get used to it. For you to get a little closer to it. To get comfortable with it. Until he can finally spring his trap. His device on you. And then he has you. And then he has you caught. We need to learn. We, not be, we must not be ignorant of the devil's devices. I'm going to try and do something that I haven't done before. Uh, this is many times when I start preparing sermons, start writing sermons. I, I never intend to, to be long, and I have yet to not be. Uh, so uh, I don't have a good track record. Brother, Brother Graber, right before, right before service, he asked me, he's like, do you have any idea how long you'll be? Because last time, because last time he preached, it was like not till 9.45 till we left out. I'm like... Ha, no idea. No, I, I, uh, I said, who knows? Uh, my watch is dead, so all bets are off. Okay, uh, no, um, but what I, th- this message, once again, sometimes I start putting a message together and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Uh, so I'm going to see what happens, but we'll see if uh, it just most likely will become a, a two-part message with next Thursday, but we'll see. Uh, so we want to look at what are the devices of the devil? Obviously, these are not all the devil's devices, but this is a a pretty good list of some of the devices that the devil will use. So let's go ahead and jump into it. The first one, the first one, let's go to Genesis chapter number three. Genesis chapter number three. We're going a lot of places in our Bible, much more teaching tonight uh, and probably next Thursday as well. Teaching on what are the devil's devices. You can only win if you know what you're facing. If not, you're just hoping that blind luck guides you through. That's like walking into a minefield and saying, well, I'll just put a blindfold on and I'll be okay. I can't see it. It's not there. Okay? Uh, yeah, that's how a child works, you know. If I can't see you, you can't see me. Okay? That's the mind of a child. Okay? If I can't see the, the minds, then they can't see me. <laughs> that's just not how it works. That's, that won't be very well. And the devil, just he waits for those, the naive ones that just walk along saying, oh, well, you know, it'll, it'll be okay. You know, it'll be fine. I'm a Christian. Well, Jesus Christ said to one of his very own apostles, as we just read, you know, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as the wheat. But what is Jesus Christ trying to say? He says, look, Peter, you know, you are no chance. You have no chance against the devil. He'll eat you up, spit you out, and make you look like a fool. So you need to do your studying. You need to do your homework. You need to protect yourself. Because, Peter, you think too much of yourself. You think you've got it all under control, but the devil, he's got his crosshairs on you, and he's going to rip you to shreds. He's going to make you look like a fool in front of God and everybody. Let us look here. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The first device that the devil is going to use is doubt. Doubt. This is the first time the devil comes in to to mankind, to God's pinnacle of creation. First thing that he says is, yea, hath God said. Doubt. See, because the devil understands Doubting is the crack in the foundation of a home. It's that hairline crack. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but if it's not taken care of, it'll be a catastrophic failure. Yea, hath God said. Doubt is one of the first and most ready weapons the devil will use against you. No doubt. It's one of his most ready weapons. It was the first weapon he used on mankind with Eve. In Webster's 1828, the Bible, uh, the, the, the dictionary says, to waver, for what doubt means, is to waver or fluctuate in opinion, to hesitate, to be in suspense, to be in uncertainty, responding to truth or fact, and to be undetermined by it. That's what it means to doubt. It doesn't seem that harsh. I'm just hesitating. I'm just undetermined. Well, yeah, that's all the devil needs. The devil just needs a foothold. He just needs a finger hold in you. And that's all he needs. He just needs the hairline crack. And he says, I got him now. I've got him now. 
Many weeks ago, Pastor Bell on a Thursday night taught on faith. Taught on faith. Let's go to Hebrews 11, chapter 11. Let's refresh our memory on what he taught us. Hebrews chapter number 11. Because you see, doubt and faith are opposites. Well, doubt is the beginning of the folding of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1, the Bible says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is belief in action. When faith is applied, I am showing confidence and trust in God, his teaching, and his guidance. A belief and a trust that requires action and obedience. That's what faith is. Faith is a belief and a trust that's so strong, that's so true, that actions and obedience have to to follow. That's what James said in the book of James. He says, look, I'll show you my faith by my works. My faith is true because it's so compelling to me that I have to work. I have to follow God. That is how strong my faith is. If your faith is so weak and anemic that you can just laissez-faire and and live a sinful life and you don't have to read your Bible, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to please God, then you have a very weak and anemic faith. Because your faith should be something that's so strong that I believe God so much that I'm going to do everything he says, no matter the situation, no matter the cost, no matter how crazy it may seem, no matter how little sense it may make, I am going to trust in God. That's what faith is. It's a strong belief. It's so strong that it requires action. That's what faith is. It's a belief that requires action. You see, doubt is the wavering of faith. It's the beginning of the faltering faith. Doubt is one of, if not the most, detrimental device the devil can use. And when it takes hold of a Christian, it's a dangerous, dangerous pitfall. Once again, we go back to the very beginning of man, the fall of man. What was the devil's device that he used? Doubt. Did God say it? That's all he needs. He just needs a Christian to scratch their head and say, is that what the Bible means? Does God really expect me to do that? Just a single doubt. It's just a hesitation. That's all it is. That's all the devil needs. It's just a hesitation. So doubt is the wavering of faith. Here's why doubt is so dangerous. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number six, just a few verses down. What does the Bible say? as Pastor Bell taught on it. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Who is him? Let's talk about God. God says, look, the only way that you're going to please me, the only way that I'll look down on you and say, that is pleasing. That makes me happy. Is when I see my children trusting me in faith. It doesn't make sense to them never will, but I'm going to trust God. See, God's economy does not make sense. This is what I was trying to teach uh, my Sunday school class this last week. God is supernatural. Super, the prefix super means above or beyond. God is above or beyond our natural world. If you could understand God, that means you would have to be supernatural. So to say, I understand God, you either don't understand what you're saying or you're lying. Okay, you can't understand God. There are some facets and small things you might be able to understand about God, but God works above our understanding. No matter how, even if we read our Bible our entire lives and knew every single nook and cranny of the Bible, it is impossible for you to truly understand everything about God. So, God understands what he's asking. That's why he's, his currency is faith. He says, you want more pleasing from me? You want more blessing from me? Show me your faith. Show me your ability to walk Step out on the water. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. Matthew 14, 27, 31. But straightway, speaking of that, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Jesus Christ. He comes walking out of the water. The disciples, they're on the boat, the middle of the Sea of Galilee, middle of the night, storm, uh, storm kicks up, craziness is happening. The disciples think they're going to die. A lot of times the disciples are in a boat and they think they're going to die. Fishermen. Happens a lot to him. Poor guys. Okay? But Jesus Christ comes walking on the water. 
And the Bible says that they saw him afar off and they began to fear. They were like, uh, something, someone is walking on the water towards us. Okay? I don't know about you. I'd be pretty freaked out too. Okay? In the middle of this storm, I think I'm going to die. This ship is about to sink and there is someone walking on the water towards me. My first thought wouldn't be, oh, it's the Lord. Yeah. Okay? My first human thought would be, ah, it's a ghost. I'm going to die. Ha. Ah. Things got even better. Uh, I'm not going to die to the ocean. I'm going to die to a ghost. Oh, this is good. So just imagine things that go on. We're irrational people, okay? At a moment's notice, our brain will go in every direction except for the right one, okay? As Pastor Bell says over and over again, the worst thing to do in a panic situation is panic. But that's the hardest thing to do in a panic situation is not panic, okay? That's our natural go-to thing. Panic situation. I got it. Panic, okay? Uh, but that's not what we're supposed to do. Verse number 28, the Bible says, And Peter uh, answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. So Peter says, If that's you, Jesus, tell me to come, and I'll do it. Verse 29, And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I mean, imagine being the apostle Peter. I mean, he's a rambunctious guy. He said whatever he thought about. But most of the time, he backed it up. I mean, he did say, you know, I'd be willing to go to the death for you, Jesus. And I mean, he kind of did. He took out a sword and cut a guy's ear off in front of all the Roman soldiers. I mean, probably had a few screws loose. He was a crazy guy. But that's who Peter was. Speak first, ask questions later. We'll figure out the problem after I get my foot out of my mouth, okay? And he said, come. And to Peter's credit, he did. He said, if that's you, Jesus, tell me to come and I will. And he did. In the, and once again, we're not, this isn't, the storm has not stopped. Jesus Christ has not said, peace be still. The storm is still raging. So it's not like Jesus Christ came and everything's good now. The storm is still going on like crazy. But Peter stepped out of the boat. And he began to walk to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And then Jesus Christ, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? The enemy to faith is doubt. You will not please God as long as you're doubting. Because doubting is the opposite of faith. I've heard people say, well, well, faith always has a little bit of doubt in it. No, that's not true. Faltering faith does. I can prove it. The three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in their day, and they said, we are not careful to answer the O king. Okay, that, that goes to tell me, they didn't have any doubt in what they were saying. We're not careful to answer thee. We're not bowing down. God can save us, but if not, what, 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 what he said, but if not, what they're saying is, look, king, our God's powerful enough, but our God's not our lapdog. We don't snap and say, God, I need you, and God comes running. They're saying, look, our, our God has enough power to save us, but if he wants to or not, it's not my business. If he wants to, we'll be saved. If he doesn't, and we're going to be with him. Doubt destroys your faith. Peter, in the midst of a miracle, think about that. In the midst of a miracle, in the midst of miraculously walking on the water, if there's a time that you would not be doubting, I think it'd be the time that you're in the middle of a miracle. Okay? In the middle of a miracle, you're literally walking on the water. Why on earth would you doubt at that time? So don't think so high and mighty of yourself that, oh, I'll never doubt. If Peter was, was able to doubt while he's literally walking on the water, doing something no one can do, that's physically impossible. Once again, it's one of those supernatural things. It's impossible. He began to doubt. So do not get on your high and mighty horse and say, oh, I'm good. I got it. I will always trust the Lord. God already knows. It's not going to happen. In fact, in that same passage where Jesus Christ told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, 
Satan had desired that he may have you to sift you as the wheat. And that's the very same passage in just a few verses down. That's where he tells him, he says, look, Peter. Because Peter says, look, I'm not going to do it. He's not going to get me. That's when Jesus Christ looked at him and said, look, the cock's going to go three twice, uh, going to crow three times. And you're going to deny me three times before that happens. See, Jesus Christ knows who we are. He knows who he's dealing with. He understands our ability to falter. See, to doubt is to forget to pray. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, he said, I would, I would that men ought always to pray. That's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Timothy, I, ought, I would that men would always pray. Always pray. That's our access to God. That's our ability to talk to the Father. When in doubt, I should go to the Father. I need to talk with the Father. The devil's device of doubt. Well, doubt brings us to the very next device, which is if doubt goes unchecked, if your doubt does not get quelled. See, Peter, his doubt was quelled because Jesus Christ grabbed him. His doubt didn't stop because he all of a sudden got his marbles together and he was good to go. No, Jesus Christ came and grabbed him. The Bible says Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand. See, doubt going unchecked brings forth disbelief. Disbelief is the fruit of doubt. Let's go back to Genesis chapter number three. That's our example of doubt. Once again, the first time it happened, Jesus, uh, the, the devil coming in, destroying God's creation. First thing he says, yea, hath God said, planted the seed of doubt. Well, Adam wasn't there to watch over his wife. And the Bible specifically says, so once again, back in the book of 1 Timothy chapter number 2, the Bible specifically says, Adam was not deceived. Eve was the one that was deceived. Adam was not deceived. So we see there in verse number 1, Yea, hath God said. Go down to verse number 3. But, the fruit, but of the fruit of the tree, this is what Eve is saying here, the woman said in certain serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the tree of the garden. But in verse number three, she says, but of the fruit of the tree in which the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye eat it, lest ye die. Verse number four, and the serpent said unto this woman, ye shall not surely die. See, doubt that goes unchecked turns into disbelief. See, doubt is just a hesitation. It's, not, uh, it's, it's meaningless. It's harmless. I'm just thinking about it, okay? It's just an undetermined moment. It's just a moment of hesitation. That's all it is. True. But a moment of hesitation can lead to a lifetime of disbelief. That's what happened with Eve. That moment, that singular moment of hesitation, that singular moment of doubt changed the entire course of human history. In that singular moment, verse number five, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat. That's all it took. Not even three-hour consultation with the devil. Just two or three sentences, and that's all it took. That's how quickly doubt can turn into disbelief. So once again, don't think too much of yourself. That momentary doubt can turn to disbelief very quickly. The disbelief. Disbelief is the final form of doubt. Doubt that is not combated, that is not replaced with faith, will turn into disbelief. Matthew chapter number 13. Well, what's, what's the big deal with disbelief? What's the big deal with not believing? Well, first off, you don't have faith. And we've already established that. If you don't have faith, then you will not please God. God's saying, I, I will not be pleased with you at all. There is, no, there is no way, shape, or form I will be pleased with you if you have doubt. That is a promise of God. That's what he said. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Well, the Bible goes on to talk more just about belief. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 58, the Bible says, And he, this is talking about Jesus Christ, and he did not many mighty works there, this is his hometown, because of their unbelief. See, not only do we stop God from being able to rain down his 
favor upon us, God says, look, I can't even, I will not show you my ability. I will stop working in your life. I will stop providing and giving you blessings and providential help because of your unbelief. You are literally stopping the hand of God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus did not mighty works there. Jesus would have loved to have done miracles all over Nazareth, just like he did all over Israel. But he says, look, you don't believe me. I'll move on. That's what God says as well. You don't believe me. I'll move on. It's okay. That's your choice. Hebrews 3.12. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. What does the Bible have to say about the unbelieving heart? The heart that is in disbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12. The Bible says, take heed. Listen up. Pay attention. That's what it's saying. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's what God thinks of the unbelief. He says, look, if you have unbelief, God says it's an evil heart. It's wicked to the highest degree. It's evil. You're departing from the living God. When you have unbelief, when you let that doubt fester and turn, God says, it's evil. It's as if you're just leaving me behind. That's how God looks at it. He says, you've left me behind. In departing from the living God. God has no patience, no understanding for disbelief. If these loom, doubt and disbelief, you cannot please God. You will not please God, and God will not show you his strong and mighty hand. You'll find that doubt and ultimately disbelief is always the final form of the devil's devices. Every other device that we'll look at, these are the end goal. The devil is trying to get you to the place of doubt and ultimately disbelief. Every single one of the devil's devices will ultimately lead down a path to get you to doubt and disbelief. It doesn't matter which one, whether it's causing you to go off into sin, whether it's causing you to get your mind and heart off of God. His goal is always to get you to the place where you no longer trust and believe in God. These are the most important ones. These are the ones that will cause you the most strife. Because these are the devil's endgame. This is what he's always trying to get to. If I can get a Christian doubting God. If I can get a saved person disbelieving in what God can do. Oh, I, I can read in the Bible that Peter walked on the water, but I, I don't, I, I've never seen it. I know the Bible says, fill in the blank, but I, I've never seen it. See, once again, faith is not by sight. Live by faith not by sight. The powerless, empty, meaningless Christian, that's the doubting and disbelieving Christian. You're empty. You're meaningless. How more, how more meaningless could you get? You bear the name of Christ and you don't even believe in his ability. You're meaningless. You're empty. You're powerless. You're powerless with God. You're powerless with man the disbelieving and doubting Christian. The next device of Satan, disappointment. Disappointment is a letdown. The feeling that is left when, when expectations are not met. Webster's 1828 defines it as this, defeat or failure of expectation. I had a thought of how it was going to go and it didn't go that way. That's a disappointment. It's a defeat or failure of hope or a wish or desire or intention, a miscarriage of design or plan. That's what it is. It's just, I had an expectation it was going to look like this, and it didn't turn out. That's a disappointment. That could be a very small thing. That could be a very big thing. It's very wide in range, but it's just a letdown. Boiling it down, it's a letdown. I thought it was going to be like this, but it turned out like this. That's a disappointment. Disappointment is common. And common meaning, it's common to all men. Every man will face disappointment many times. Disappointment is common. And anyone who is honest will admit that many times in their life, they have faced many, many 
disappointing times. Romans 8.28, you probably know it. Romans 8.28, the Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good. Now, we usually love to stop there. The promise of God always has a prerequisite. There's always a prerequisite to the promise of God. God says, I want to do this for you. As long as you do this. The prerequisite of the promise is, here's the promise. All things, every single thing, all means all. All things work together for good. What's the prerequisite? To them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. God says, you do those two things, everything, no matter how bad, how bleak, how dark it may seem, everything will work out for good. If you love me, and you're doing your best to follow my daily will, what I tell you to do, what is the will of God? Well, God tells you, he really says in the Bible, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Be thankful, okay? Pray without ceasing. The commands of God, that's the daily will of God for you. The plan of God is revealed as you walk with the Lord. So if you're called according to his purpose, well, his purpose is do what I tell you to do. You love me and you do what I tell you to do, I promise you, 100% money back guarantee from God himself. You do those two things, doesn't matter how bad it may seem, doesn't matter how unimaginable it may be, God promises all things work together for good. That's God's promise. The thing to remember, the wise Christian, when they're faced with disappointment, understands this is an appointment from God. That somehow, some way, God has good for me in this. That this is an opportunity that God has given me for me to grow or for me to help someone else along the way. That is the wise Christian. The wise Christian looks at the disappointing times, the times when they're let down, the times when things do not go the way they thought it was going to go, no matter how big or how small, they say, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? What does God have for me? Because I know I love God, and I know I'm doing everything I can to follow his will and to do what the Bible says, so I know God's in control. And you know the wonderful thing about it is when you love God and you do what God wants you to, you know it's not the chastening hand of God. You don't have to sit back and look in your life. Okay, what did I do wrong? Okay, it's not that moment of, you know, when you talk to a teenager and say, hey, I need to talk to you. It's like, all the blood drains out of their face. You're like, oh, God, oh, do they know? Do I know about what? <laughs> Depends. How much do you know? Okay, uh, all these different things. You don't have to have that attitude with God if you know there is nothing. There's an old saying, keep a short account with God. It's talking about your sin account. Basically meaning, it is my goal to make sure there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. I want to make sure if I do something, I get it taken care of. I go to God and say, God, I know it's not going to keep me from heaven, but it's going to keep my relationship with you not what it should be. And it's not worth it. That's all God wants. He says, look, if you love me, and do what I want you to do. And he, Jesus Christ even himself says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So they're really one and the same. To them that love me, to them that are called according to my purpose, it's really one and the same. If you do love me, I'll know if you do, because you'll be doing what I tell you to do. Disappointments are an advantage to the Christian for them to grow, or for them to help someone else along the way. But the devil will try and use disappointments to cause us to stumble and doubt God. It's a true thing. Look at Job. When God brought up Job to the devil, the devil says, look, God, Job is only listening to you. Job only follows you. Job only praises you because you've been so nice to him. Look at all the stuff you gave him. He's one of the richest men to ever live. Look at all his stuff. And the devil says, I, I, I think if you take away those things, he's going to show his true colors. I think he's going to show you what he really thinks. He's going to tell you what he really thinks. 
so God said, okay, go ahead, try my servant. So he did. Dramatic pause. Uh, so he did. His wealth, gone. I mean, and put, your, put yourself in the mind of Job. The Bible says that one after another, they just kept on coming. One guy comes, oh, that's horrible. You know, I'm sure Job's like, man, that, that's horrible. Why'd that have to happen? And while he's still speaking, another one comes. They start, start forming a line. I mean, just imagine being Job. Like, the bad news cannot even finish being said before ma- more bad news is right there for him. Boom, 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 boom. Over and over and over. This keeps on happening and happening. And the devil says, you wait. It's going to happen. Okay, I don't know about you. I don't think any of us have had more disappointment than that. You think everything's going good, and then major disappointment. I mean, talk about letdown, okay? All of your camels, oh, they're all gone. And oh, all the servants that you had, they're dead, okay? All of your cattle, they're all dead. All your servants, they're all dead. I'm the only one alive. Domino after domino falls. Boom, 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 boom. Kids, they're all dead. Just like that. All of them. All your kids. All your adult children. Every single one. They're dead. In a moment. And what did Job say? Hey, blessed be God. I came into this earth with nothing, and I'm going to take nothing out. It's not my choice. God gave it to me anyways. If this is what God wants, God has a reason. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, talk about faith. Talk about someone that knew how to deal with disappointment. And the devil goes back to the Lord and says, I still think you're being too nice to him. His health. You take away his health too, then he's really going to let loose. He's just letting it fester for now. But when you take his health, he's going to let it fly. And so God said, okay, go ahead. You can't kill him, but take his health. Some of the most horrific problems Job dealt with. Sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The Bible talks about how he had used a potsherd, broken pots, broken clay vessels to scrape the pus out of his mighty sores. Ah, yeah, that's a bad day. Misery upon misery upon misery. And he wasn't expecting any of it. It's not like he had these days circled like, ah, bad days are coming. He didn't know. Disappointment after disappointment. And his wife even turned on him and said, look, just curse God and die, Job. It's not worth it. I mean, can you imagine that? Everything is, everyone is turning against you and then even your own wife turns against you, your own spouse. Your friends begin to attack you. And Job had the wherewithal to say, look, you speak as one of the foolish women. So don't don't talk like that. You're not thinking right. That's what he's telling you. You're not thinking right. I know you're upset just as much as I am, but it's okay. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The disappointments Job faced, and he still did what was right. He still said, no, it's okay, I trust God. I also think of Joseph. I mean, talk about disappointments. I mean, your own brothers. I mean, I know there's brotherly adversity, but I mean, this is a new level. His own brothers gang up on him, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery. I mean, I understand brotherly competition. You don't like your brother and all that. The younger brother, he's the favorite. I know, okay? We're perfect, what can I say? (laughs) But I mean, sold into slavery? I don't know, maybe my siblings thought about it. I don't know. Okay? Sold into slavery, that, that's, uh, uh, that's pretty bad. That's, uh, that's pretty intense. But he stayed true. He was lied about by his master's wife and thrown into prison. And he stayed true. He was forgotten about after he did something he didn't have to do. And he stayed true. Disappointment. After disappointment, he stayed true. Mary and Martha with their brother Lazarus. Talk about disappointment. 
We got a hold of Jesus. He knows he's on his way. Lazarus is going to be okay. But then Jesus doesn't show up. And then Jesus doesn't show up. And then Jesus doesn't show up. Way past the time that they thought Jesus was going to be there. Talk about a disappointment. You talk to Jesus Christ. I talked to God. He said he was coming. It's going to be okay. But then he dies. That's a disappointment. On the highest level. Because you expected God to do something and God didn't do it. Disappointment. They were disappointed with the reality that they faced. When disappointment's gone, the questions need to be answered of Romans 8.28. Do I love God? According to the Bible. Not according to my standards of love. According to the Bible. If he loved me, keep my commandments. Am I called according to his purpose? Am I following God's will, his plan, very present will that is simple and obvious for me to follow? If yes and yes, then trust God that this disappointment is for a greater good. That's his promise. If I can say, yes, I love God, and I am doing everything I can to follow him, I am keeping his commandments, I am following the Bible, I am following his will, then God says, it's just a disappointment. I'm using it to either grow you or to help someone else along the way. That's why many things happen to us. It's not just for you. It's not all about you. It's about those that are around you. God says, I want to help someone, but I want to use someone to help them. Okay, it's just like the man that was blind from birth. His, the disciples of Jesus asked him, he says, Jesus, this guy, he's blind from birth. Did he sin or did his father, his parents sin? And Jesus said, guys, nobody sinned, okay? This is so God, God did this so I could manifest my power. So I could show people what I can do. God says, sometimes bad things come because I want to show what I can do. I want to show who I am. I want to show my strong and mighty arm. If you can say yes, then just trust God is working on me. This disappointment is nothing, anything bigger than God is working on me or working through me. But once again, if you do not handle disappointment, it will lead to the next device of discouragement. You do not handle your disappointments that you face. You will face disappointments. Get over it. That's life. Disappointments come. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. Good or bad, you're going to have disappointments. Okay? Your axle of your car may break as you're going down the highway to visit your parents in Cleveland. It happens. Okay? Uh, it rains on the just and the unjust. That, that is part of life, good and bad. But how you deal with that disappointment will determine if the next device comes into you, discouragement. Discouragement goes hand in hand with disappointment. Discouragement is disappointment that was not handled properly. Discouragement is when you lose motivation for something that provides purpose or fulfillment. Webster said, the act of disheartening or depriving of courage. The act of deterring or dis, uh, dissuading from an undertaking. That which destroys or abates courage, confidence, or hope. It destroys it, takes it away. I'm just discouraged. My disappointment has turned into discouragement. Same candidates, Job, Joseph, Mary, and Martha. All of them are candidates for disappointment turning into discouragement. I mean, once again, you can't get more worse than Job. And it, once again, it wasn't like a one and done, five minutes of suffering, and then, ah, oh, the sunshine again. No, he went through this for a long time. If I remember correctly, I believe the Bible says that when his friends came, they sat in silence for, I believe it was seven days, sitting on a pile of ash, scraping pus out of his wounds, I mean, if you were the friend of Job, what would you say? Sometimes that's the best thing you can do, is just show someone that you're there for them. 
but just don't open your mouth. See, that was their problem. They opened their mouth. They would have been much better friends if they just sat. So this wasn't like a boom, 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 then God came swooping in and everything was okay. This was a long time. This was a prolonged process. Disappointment leads to discouragement. First Samuel chapter 30. Someone who was discouraged. First Samuel chapter number 30. Verses 1 through 6, the Bible says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, <coughs> excuse me, and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. Okay, so just to give a rough background of what's going on here, David and his, his followers, his men that followed him, they are now down in the country of Philistia. They are out of Israel. Saul is still on a tirade trying to get after David, trying to get after his men. And so they said, look, guys, we've got to get out of here. And so they went down to uh, Philistia, and they're living there now. So they lived in the city of Ziklag. Okay? So basically, David and all his men, they went over because uh, the Philistines were about to fight the Israelites, and they called all of them in. They said, look, you've got to come here too. And then they said, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea to have David on our side because we really don't know if we can trust him. That's probably not a good idea to have his army in the middle of our army while we're fighting the Israelites, just in case this was a big ruse the whole time to try and capture us. So the other princes said, go back home. We don't want you to fight with us. So this is where the story comes in. While David and his men were gone, the Amalekites came to Ziklag, where they lived, and pillaged it. Verse number two, and he had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, uh, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Understand the situation that David is in. David has his men that followed him. Now, yes, most of these men, they followed him originally because they had nothing better to do. Most of these men, if you look back where they came from, most of them were uh, uh, poor. They, they were convicts or things like that. They, their life was already awash. Some of them, though, had been with David even from the beginning. Some of his family, they didn't come from poor backgrounds. But they have decided to stake it all with David. They said, David, we'll follow you. We'll even go into the enemy's territory if that's where you think we need to go. They followed David everywhere. Brought their families, brought everything they had. So understand, these men have sacrificed everything for David. They've literally sacrificed their lives. They said, David, we'll go wherever you go. We'll take our families there. We'll go because we believe you are the anointed of God. We're going to follow you, David. So understand, they've given David everything they've got. And they're down here. And I have no doubt that many of them had their questions and their qualms about going down to Philistia. But they're here now. And while they're gone, all of their families get captured and stolen away. And they get back. And just imagine the heartbreak. You've already given everything up for David. The one thing you had left, your family. That's all they had left. That's all these men had left. For the past months and years, these men have been on the run nonstop from King Saul. That's all they had was their family. And now, their family was gone. That's it. Come back to a smoldering pile of ash. Can you imagine walking in to the city and seeing that? You've already given up everything for David. And now the one last thing you hold dear is gone. Your wives, 
children, sons, daughters, they're all gone. No one was left. The Bible is very explicit. Then the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. They had cried every bit they could cry. There was no more. They physically could not cry anymore. That is, that is very far into sadness and discouragement. That's probably nigh on to depression. You cannot cry anymore. That's how intense it was. And in their moment of discouragement, blind with rage probably, they said, we've given everything for David. This is what we take. This is David's fault. We shouldn't even be here. We should still be running around Israel. We shouldn't be down in Philistine. We shouldn't be down with the Philistines. And they even spake of stoning him. This is the man they've sacrificed everything for. The man they've pledged their lives to. And they've gotten to the place where they were even debating and speaking and saying, you know what, let's just kill him. I'm done with this. I've lost it all. So you're in the men's mind now. Think about David. Everything they've lost, he's lost as well. But not only that burden that he bears, he also does bear the burden of he knows these men have sacrificed it all for him. And he knows it's me. He knows everything that's happened to them is because of me. They chose to follow me. And because they followed me, now their families are gone. For all they know, they could be dead. So just imagine the weight that was on David's shoulders. The discouragement that he faced. But the resolute strength of David. Facing that adversity. And he's able to say, you know what? been in some hard situations before. I'm going to trust God. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, we like to use that real quickly. Oh, David encouraged himself in the Lord. No, really think about what David had to do here. The immense pressure and power that he was under from himself, from his men, regret. And he said, wonder if he thought about when he was a teenage boy, the lion and the bear. I mean, come on now. A lion and a bear he killed as a teenager? By himself? Didn't have a gun? Just his slingshot. That's it. Just his stone and his sling. That's the only weapons he had growing up. And he killed a lion and a bear. I mean, if you've ever seen those creatures before, histories, the promises of God from Deuteronomy, the charge of God when he talked to Joshua. I wonder if those are some of the things he also thought about. When God looked at Joshua and said, Joshua, my servant Moses is dead. Be strong and of good courage. There's going to be some bad days ahead of you, Joshua. But I'll keep you. I'll keep you strong and of good courage. Imagine being David. Think back on what the Bible tells you on those times of discouragement. I've been disappointed, but the disappointment is so strong I just cannot get over it. Oh yeah, there are those that have faced some very discouraging times. But the devil relishes it. He sits back and he enjoys seeing Christians, children of God, suffering in disappointment and discouragement.
next week we'll continue on. Hopefully we'll be able to finish through this. There's many more that we'll look at. These first few are very deep. There's one more step beyond discouragement. We'll bring it to that next week. But let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, thank you for this time.